as we look in the book of Hebrews, and I encourage you, would you open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at um, pretty, the, the kind of the second half. I'm going to start in verse 12. Last week we looked at the, f- the first 11 verses of chapter 12, and this week my goal is to get from there through the end of the chapter. And the next two weeks we'll take a look at chapter 13. Again, just by way of reminder, the book of Hebrews was written to a people that we have, in a sense, been talking about and relating to and recognizing that we're not unlike them, that we too have tasted salvation, that we too have experienced the saving work of God and recognized for all of us in here who call ourselves Christians, we have a sense of the work that God has done. And yet, the interesting thing about salvation is though we experience it in part now, we haven't experienced the fullness of it. That day is yet to come. In part, when we are brought home to heaven, but ultimately, when all of us live on this renewed earth in our new bodies. That is the culmination and consummation of all the salvation work that God is heading towards as he calls the people to himself and as he ultimately prepares a place for us all to live together. In the meantime, we are people who can say we are saved and yet we're in a battle. As Dwight said, it's a ferocious battle. The context of the book of Hebrews is a group of people who are experiencing again incredible persecution. They have already endured, as the writer tells us here in chapter 10, they have already endured public humiliation, public humiliation for their faith. Some of them have come alongside those who have been publicly humiliated for the faith, and they too have felt that that reproach put on them, that humiliation put on them. They've gone to visit brothers and sisters in prison who have ended up there because of their faith, And they have experienced the plundering of their houses because of their faith. And in times past, but in their first, uh, assuming this is maybe the second time they've experienced this, but when they experienced that before, the author said, you did it with faith. You walked through it. You remained steadfast in your faith, in your commitment to Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 11, maybe a passage that you're very familiar with, he begins to list, and you're like these men and women of the Old Testament. Some who received great glorious promises. They saw victory over enemy kingdoms. They saw the kingdom of Israel expand, but many of whom were given promises that they had to walk towards that were really invisible. They did not see it. They didn't experience it. Abraham's a good example. Abraham, you're going to get all this land, and you're going to have descendants as numerous as the sand and the stars. And he looks around. Hmm. Me and Sarah are getting old. No kids. But he trusted. But he trusted. He showed faith, and like others who had the faith in God in the Old Testament, endured hardship, endured the lion's den, endured the fiery furnace, endured the sword, endured destitution, hiding from their enemies out in caves and in the wilderness, but kept their faith. And the writer of Hebrews, and I believe the Holy Spirit, talking to us through this passage is saying, do the same. 
do the same. The passage we looked at last week, just by way of quick review, gave us two illustrations. One of them was that of a loving, disciplining father. When we go through hardship, and as the, these, these brothers and sisters in the early church needed to hear, when they were going through hardship, it wasn't that God had abandoned them. In fact, it was just the opposite. He was working through it. And just by way of quick reminder, there is nothing that happens in our lives that God does not use for your good and for mine, for everyone who loves him and have been called according to his name, according to his purposes. God was at work, and these people needed to hear it, and we are not different from them. The loving, disciplining touch of our Heavenly Father. The other thing that we can relate this to, and this is where we can pick it up, this is where our passage is going to jump in today, was that of a race. Just like all these Old Testament believers uh, who trusted in the extent of the promise that they had to, to follow, to, to know uh, what God was doing, they certainly didn't know near as much as we do. They didn't know what God was going to do in his own son, becoming incarnate, dying on the cross, giving his Holy Spirit to everyone who would believe. But they trusted in God for what they knew, and they showed faith, and he said, keep running. Keep running. Continue to run this race and do it with endurance. You've got these other Old Testament saints who are cheering you on from the stands. And ultimately, you have Jesus Christ. Look to him. Keep him front and center in your sights and keep going. And as we pick up then at verse 11 in chapter 12 of Hebrews, uh, not 11, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. He gives this same idea. And just by way of structure, for those of you who'd like to know where in the world are we going as we work through this, is in my Bible kind of breaks it up by paragraph. I'm going to handle each paragraph kind of one at a time, and we're going to work our way through that way as we get through the end of chapter 12. Here in verse 12, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. You get this image. Again, he's bringing back this race image. If you see a runner whose arms are down, whose back is bent, who's kind of stumbling along, you know, assuming the race is still on, there's no energy left. And probably not only is there no energy left, there's, there's no courage. There's no will to run. Everything has been sapped from him. Um, it's football season for us. Some of you are football fans. I enjoy following college football, and the team I root for is Michigan State University. I grew up in Michigan, and all my relatives, lots of them went to Michigan State. And so just by, you don't get to be a Christian just by your family, but you do often get to be a sports fan because of your family, and that's, that's how I am. So I still root for them, and they're off to a good start. And one of the things that their coach said we look for is fatigue in the other team. You look for drooping hands. You look for that guy that earlier in the game trotted off the field when he was done and the next guy trotted on and you look for later in the game when that same guy is walking off the field. Then you know you got him where you want him. For us, we don't want to be the ones with drooping hands walking 
off the field when we should be trotting. We do have an enemy who is on the prowl, who is looking for us and looking for those same things in us. And so us, as a body of believers, as a church, we look around, and this message will come through as we work through this paragraph, we work at this together. The writer of Hebrews encourages these Christians, and and if you study the book of Hebrews, you will know that this writer knew the Old Testament through and through. Every single line of this paragraph that we are going to look at has a reference to the Old Testament or is coupled with another phrase that will take you to the Old Testament. And so this first line comes from Isaiah 35, where the prophet Isaiah was telling the Israelites, though things look bad, and you are fatigued, you are defeated, and you feel defeated. You feel like you haven't won, and yet the game continues on. You just, you'd rather almost give up and just say, game over. The game's continuing. You're tired. You're done. But God says through the prophet, lift up your drooping hands. In the running analogy that he's using in this passage, get your stride back. Why? Because God is at work. One of the main ideas of the Old Testament and the main idea for us is that our strength comes from the Lord. In the Old Testament, it was often phrased this way, wait on the Lord. If you're going to battle, don't follow men who look strong, but the Lord isn't with them. For Israel, it didn't matter how big that leader was. It didn't matter whether God said, you have too many soldiers, get rid of some of them. Let's only take 300 against the 100,000. What matters is if God is with them. And what matters for us when we face our trials is if God is with us. And all throughout this book, the writer is saying, God is with you. You may not feel it. You may not see him. You may not experience his presence. You may get to a point where you say, I don't know that I have anything left except the simple faith that I believe Jesus is Lord. And if anybody asked why, I would just say, I just don't know where else to go. We get there, don't we? God is with you. He is with you. And if you feel like you have the drooping hands and your knees are weak and things are about to fall out of joint, and he says, make your paths straight, a reference here to the book of Proverbs in that next line, The author is bringing all these things back to, you can't see it now, but the Lord is at work. The Lord will take revenge for things that have been done that are wrong. That's not that we don't pursue justice in our own. We're like our God. We pursue justice, but we also do that open-handedly, and we trust in him, and we know ultimately there is a judgment day coming. He goes on and he says this, strive, in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, he goes on, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Let me go back here. Why is he talking about things that Christians already receive? We read it in the prayer here. 
Are we righteous as Christians? Yes. Do we have peace with God? Yes. Did we receive the grace of God as a gift from him? Yes. And yet, the author here is saying, like Paul said in Ephesians, strive. Strive. That word is strong. It's a, it's a word that means work eagerly, work persistently, pay attention, strive. This book is full of these kinds of commands. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will with 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 which no one will see without which that's what I'm trying to get to that with didn't sound quite right <clears throat> my head and eyes were doing two different things and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord he's telling a group of christians you don't just get to say you're a christian you walk in it it is a life that we live our living God, though we don't see him, is real. He's alive, he's at work, he's powerful, and he is in each one of us. And he strengthens us for the battles that we have, for the hardships that we endure, for the trials that come our way. It's real, he does that, and we wait on him. And together, as the command says here, as he writes to this church experiencing persecution, strive, do this, strive to live at peace with everyone. Make every effort. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Live out a life that you're separate, that you're distinct from the ways of the world. Live out the practical holiness, the obedient life that God calls us to. Somebody mentioned yesterday at the men's advance in one of their talks that when God gives a command, he actually expects us to do it. That's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, well, you guys, you, whoa, you went to the deep end of the pool. Wow, good for you. <clears throat> but there's something profound, at least I found it profound. Um, do you ever take those commands and say, okay, Lord, just help me and maybe just kind of do it for me in your strength? What he says is, do it, and I'm going with you. But it's not the picture that God is going to, like, pull us along. Here, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, say you're sorry. Come on. Get over. I mean, maybe some of you have been convicted and it sort of feels like that. And you're like, Lord, no, I don't want to do that. That's his good work, too. But when he tells us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, those are things that we are to do. And we can because he's the God who strengthens us. He goes on, and in this, in this paragraph, he's going to say a few things. He's going to say to this church and to us three things. And he starts it with this. See to it. And he's going to list three things after this. So let's pay attention to this. See to it, another command for us, for a church. And again, this is, this is not individualistic Christianity. This isn't just see to it that you make sure you don't do this. But this is why being a body of believers is so important. It's why listening to good sermons and podcasts is good, but it's not the church. You have to have real people who love you and who you can love. You have to have real people with which you say, hey, together, let's see to it. Let's see to it that no one in our group, in our congregation, fails to obtain 
the grace of God. Very simply, let's make sure no one walks away from Jesus. There have been studies done during, um, during this COVID season uh, saying that about 7% of churchgoers aren't returning to church. That study was reported by the AP. There's a kind of a... Uh, article that's often cited that was done about three months ago and, and typed up and Pew Research and a few other research organizations are finding that that same number about seven percent of people who have stopped going to church because of COVID and because people went home have just decided they're not going back now if you dice that number up a little bit it's not all seven percent are saying we're walking away from Jesus some are deciding to go a different church some have said well we're just not ready to go back yet but habits are important things. And what a powerful and dangerous season this has been for us to think that church can be done on TV. I was kind of conflicted as a pastor. Should we even record our services? I mean, for a season we, we needed to, and we, we still continue to do that. And for those of us in our congregation who are out traveling and want to tune in and want to hear what's going on, want to hear that the old men won the wiffle ball game, that's great. You stay in touch with one another through those important messages. But this has been a dangerous season where we stayed at home and watched on TV. But I know here and I know other believers in our city and state and country and in the world, we're reaching out to one another. Okay, so we're not going to go visit. We're not going to see each other right now this, this last year, that sort of thing. But we can still love each other. We can still call and say, what do you need? What can I bring to you? How are you doing? Are you okay? Are you sick? Are you healthy? Let's check in. And those are the sort of things that believers do. But let's see to it that no one walks away from the grace of God. Number two here, what he's getting at, let's see to it that no root of bitterness, reference to Deuteronomy, springs up and causes trouble. And by it many to come, become defiled. This, this root of bitterness is a reference back to Deuteronomy 29. If you're familiar with the grand scope of the scriptures and the history that's recorded in the Old Testament, you know that the book of Deuteronomy is a sermon, this, these admonitions, these instructions that God's giving to Israel through Moses right before they enter the promised land. They have disobeyed the Lord in a, in a number of ways and therefore had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, continued to in some cases show trust and in many cases not. And now Moses is saying, and here's how it relates to this root of bitterness. He says, be careful. Be careful that when you go over to that land that you don't make idols like they have. You can picture that they're, they're idols because they were physical things, carvings out of wood usually is the reference that's, that's given. Archaeologists have found some of these things, especially those made out of stone and, and whatnot, but they would bow down and worship these idols. And Moses is saying, don't do that. There is one true God, and you need to worship him and him alone. Don't let idolatry, don't let this root of bitterness, don't walk away from the living God and pursue something else. 
the passage in Deuteronomy actually goes on, and you can look it up later. There's lots of great cross-references, and I encourage you to go back and read through those Old Testament passages that relate to this. But he goes on and says, don't let that root of bitterness come up and grow into the community of Israel. The root, a root that produces bad, like a, like a weed, like a nasty sort of weed, a bitter fruit, a bitter root that, that grows up and, and, and causes trouble for the whole community. When one person says, I'm no longer following Jesus, it's not just them who's affected. Have you experienced that? It affects the whole community. And so as a community, as a congregation, we work together, we walk patiently with those who are struggling, who have questions, who are thinking this is too hard. I don't think following Jesus is a great thing to do. I don't know that I can keep doing it. Where else do you go? Who else is going to make you right? Who else is going to prepare you for the judgment that's coming? But let this not grow and stay in the community and then spread to the community and cause problems. See to it that no root of bitterness, that no one walk away from Jesus pursuing other idols in the Old Testament sense. What about us? We don't have these carved images that we bow down to, but it's easy for us. It's easy. In fact, early in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, the writer says it this way. Be careful that you do not drift away. The image is a boat that's offshore that slowly and almost imperceptibly moves farther and farther and farther away from shore without really the, the person or the people in the boat really doing anything to make it happen. So be careful. This is the battle that Dwight prayed. Uh, that we have to recognize we're in a battle and if we're not attentive, we can run the risk of drifting. I think that fits our culture more than more than this intensity that they experience because of persecution. Our temptations, I think, are not little physical idols, but it's things like comfort. I'm going to follow Jesus uh, and just let me get everything in order. Let me be real comfortable. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm giving him my whole life, but let me just make sure all my finances are in perfect order. Let me make sure there's really kind of no risk here in, in, in this thing. It's an illusion. It's wise to be good stewards of our finances, but we are not in control. You are not in control. I am not in control. God is in control, and ultimately, he is the one that we trust. Being wise, being good stewards of things that we have is good, but it's very easy in our culture to make these things into idols. To take a little bit of entertainment and move it into the realm of this is really what I think about, this is what I plan my day around, this is what I do, this is what I talk to my friends about. As Dave said earlier, we need to talk about the message of salvation. What's coming into your heart and what's coming into your mind on a daily basis and let's see to it that none of us drift away and worship the false idols of our age. He goes on and he gives one more example and he talks about Esau. 
let's see to it that no one in the community is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Well, who's Esau? This is what he did, you might remember. For he sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We don't actually see in the Old Testament, this is an interesting line here by this author, we don't actually see in the Old Testament that Esau actually wanted to repent. He was sorry that he lost his inheritance. You remember when he came in from his hunting trip and he was famished and he just said, just give me that stew, it smells delicious that his brother Jacob had made. And Jacob, a little bit conniving, but used by God, that's something you take up with God, but be thankful he uses imperfect people. Jacob says, just give me your birthright. In the ancient world, it's a very significant thing. And, and just in that conversation, apparently the transaction was done. Esau traded what was valuable and, 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 and not eternal but substantial for something that was perishable and going to be gone in a few minutes. He, par- he traded something that was weighty for something that was trivial and light. Let's not be people Let's make sure we're not a church that trades the weighty, the beautiful, the glorious salvation for things that are trivial and things that are temporary. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to show us if that message fits us. It's just so easy to say, oh yeah, I believe that. And then we go on and we make other things as more important than what Jesus has done for us. That's the first paragraph. That's the message of the author to them about don't fall away. But he has another message along these same lines for them. And here he's going to contrast two things. He's going to contrast the Old Testament Israelites walking to Mount Sinai and receiving the the Ten Commandments. And he's going to paint a picture of what that relationship with God was like. And then he's going to contrast it with the picture of what the believer has in our approach to God. I'm going to read through this paragraph, and then I want to unpack it just a little bit. This one won't take as long, but I do think this one is more powerful. For you, Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no, or the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, and here's the transition, and if you know How Paul likes to use this phrase, we see something similar here, but God. We're going to see something similar, the transition. This is what believers approach God like. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Very simply put, these Christians were tempted to walk away from Jesus. The persecution seemed to be Christian-focused. They wanted to kind of fall back maybe to Judaism. Maybe isn't, the, isn't that close enough? Isn't that going to get us there? And the author is saying, no. God has closed that chapter. He has replaced the old covenant with the new. The old is done. The new has come in Jesus Christ. You have to live in the new. There's no going back or else you're walking away. So what was that old covenant like? And you get these words. The old covenant established at Mount Sinai, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, led by Moses, the one who spent lots of time talking to God, receiving the law from God. And you get words in here. Darkness, gloom, blazing fire, a tempest, trumpet sound and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They wanted to hear Moses, you go talk to him and we'll do what, what, what he tells us to do through you, but we don't want to talk to him. Terrifying, trembling with fear. That should not look like what you think your relationship between you and God is like if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. If you heard what Dave said and if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, that is not your relationship. That is not who God is. Again, the author wanted to make sure that he said, this is how God related to Israel. This is the way he, he met them on Mount Sinai. This is their response. Do you really want to go back to that? And then he paints this picture, and there's a few things that I want to get in front of us, but here's the question I have for you. Do you believe in things you cannot see? Is it possible that there are true and real things that you have never seen, but they really exist, and they are true of you as well? How often do you meditate on things that the Word tells us is true, but you probably have yet to see? This is one of those passages that tells us, brothers and sisters, if you focus on this, this can transform your life and the way you walk around through your daily life. For our Hebrew brothers and sisters who are under persecution, it could help them move from, I am fearful and, and I want to give up the faith because people are persecuting us, humiliating us, putting reproach on us. They're taking things from us. This is the sort of passage that helps people endure. But you, verse 22, but you Christians have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is, is another name for Jerusalem. So Mount Sinai was the start of the Old Covenant. Jerusalem is the place of the New Covenant where Jesus, with his shed blood, initiated and gave that final sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice at Jerusalem. But notice what he says here. He's writing to believers who are still alive, and he says, but you 
have come. Think about that. What else could he have said? But you will come. What does that say? You're not there yet, but you will get there. He doesn't say that. So brothers and sisters, you have come. You have come already to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. You, in a reality, are there. Now, it's not all fulfilled. We don't see it yet. There is a sense where we're not there, but it is absolutely true. You have come. This might be a verse to memorize and to let this sink in as you meditate on it, as you bring it up to mind, as you're driving around, as you're shopping, as you have those moments where you're not in the midst of everything. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All synonyms. This is the place where God lives. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is Mount Zion. You are there. And what's going on there? What is it like? Is it fear? Is it trembling? Is it darkness? Is it gloom? It's a festival. It is a joyous festival. Get in your mind a festival scene of people walking around, having a great time. Because what is happening at this place is there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. And not only do we have innumerable angels, which we see in other places in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, we're reading chapter 4, chapter 5, we see that in the heavens are these innumerable angels, sometimes set up for different things, sometimes they're an army, but here the picture is this is, this is the fellowship, this is the group that we as believers live in in a present reality now and ultimately we'll see. And not only are they there, but there's this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This, I believe, this idea of being enrolled is like this idea of in, in the ancient world, you'd go and you would get registered at the city when a census was taken or something like that. Your name would be written in a book, and it's that same word that's used here. You are enrolled. Your name is written down. Your name is in the book. You're on the invite list if your faith is in Jesus Christ. And you know what? No one can remove it. Satan can't remove it. Hardship can't remove it. Trials can't remove it. Death can't remove it. Not yours, not a loved one. Cancer can't remove it. Losing all your money can't remove it. Your name is written. You are enrolled. This is the place where you belong, and this is the place, let me say it this way, that others can't wait for you to join. I'm not trying to speed you through this life, but we're in an endurance race, and you and I need something to look forward to, someone to look forward to. And the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit for all of us to trust in and put our confidence in, is saying, you are enrolled. Why are we enrolled? Why is this festal gathering? Why do we, as verse 23 continues, we get to go to 
God. Notice there's no qualifiers around that. Fear, tremble, darkness, gloom. Festal. You're expected. You're wanted. We get to go be with God, the judge of all. He is the judge of all. We have to recognize that he is the judge of each one of us. And then we transition to another group and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And I think here he's talking about those of our brothers and sisters who are already there. You know some of them. You know loved ones who have put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ and have gone on to heaven. That line, made perfect, is important because that's a big part, especially as he moves into verse 24, and to Jesus. We get to go to Jesus. We sang about that this morning, that we are going to see him. He's the mediator, the initiator of this new covenant, this better covenant. We're made perfect. The blood has been sprinkled. His blood is so much better than the blood of Abel. That honestly is a little bit of an obscure reference. People are saying, well, we're all in this old covenant stuff, like Moses stuff, and now Abel jumps in here, and he predates all of that. So what's going on? I'm not totally sure. Abel was, though we know he was from sinful parents and had sin in him, he was the innocent one, at least between him and Cain. He was killed. His blood did nothing. But not Jesus. Jesus was the innocent one. His blood was shed. And his blood, going back to that, that verb, made perfect. Once and for all, all of us who put our trust in him. That's the truth. Can you endure? Can you press on and press through in what God has for you in his kind and loving discipline work through whatever hardship you are facing and will face, can you press on? Because it's not by your goodness. It's not by my good works and it's not by yours. It's not by our good looks. That's for sure. I mean, you guys look great. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if any of us are you know, that good for, for heaven. There was blood that was shed on a cross like this, really, on this earth about 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem that you can go visit. And that blood had an effect that no one else's blood has had. That was the sacrifice that makes all sinners clean who come to him out of humility, who say, I am not worthy. I shouldn't be on that invite list. I haven't done anything that I deserve to be here. It's not your goodness, it's the love of God. Do you walk and do you live in light of his love for you every day? That's the only thing. That's our bedrock. That's what's going to see you through and me through no matter what we come to and because of that, because through his blood you've been made perfect, there is a festival going on that can't wait for you to show up. So don't veer off the course. Don't put your hope in anything else. Stay focused on Jesus Christ and run the race with endurance 
And don't run alone. Run with us. Help us all get there. It's not a race to be fastest. It's a race just to be completed. And let's do that together. Let me finish up with this last paragraph. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. These are, by the way, the last words of this writer. In the next chapter, he's, gonna, he's got a number of kind of odds and ends, some admonitions that he wants to get to. But here's his concluding paragraph of a message that he's been writing for 12 chapters. Don't fall away. God loves you so much. This is what he's done for you. He has brought you into the family. You have accepted it. Don't let any hardship get in the way of that. Trust him. There's a great glory coming. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Old Testament, Israel reference, he warned them, he on earth, they saw visibly shaking of mountains, that sort of thing. They walked away, they worshiped idols. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Heaven being the greater place than earth, if a message comes to us from heaven, how much more should we listen to it? Again, verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. And here comes another passage from the Old Testament from the book of Haggai. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Once more, there is one judgment coming. We see little judgments all throughout the Bible, but there is one ultimate judgment that's coming. Heaven and earth, no one is exempt from this. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That consuming fire, image of God, Old Testament, is this God, was right after that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. He desires for us to come to him. And he loves us so much. The reality of the message of the book of Hebrews is that some who go to church, some who are regular among us, among other churches, wherever they might be, who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, we need this book because the warning is don't walk away from Jesus. If you stay with Jesus, if you just keep your faith in him as small as, as, as sometimes it seems, like, Lord, I, I, I hear you, I trust you, but man, give me more faith. That's good. That's a good prayer. But don't walk away from him. Don't turn away from him. Don't put your hope in anything else. Whether it's persecution or COVID, don't run away, walk away, drift away from Jesus. Not only is he, is he our only hope, but there is a glorious future 
for us to look forward to. Not a dangerous God, but a God who loved us so much to make us clean and acceptable to him. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself that way? If you do, then this last, these last two verses, this is where the author goes, therefore, you know the judgment is coming, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be a grateful people receive, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This image that during the judgment, things will be shaken and anything that falls loose is not going to stay in, is not going to pass the test of the judgment but we are part of a kingdom that is solid. This isn't saying that the earth is, is wicked and vile and everything about it is wrong and heaven is just the good place. Earth is a place that God has made and he will redeem and restore everything that he wants. I think he's going to conquer all the wrongdoing that Satan and sinners have brought to this earth. He's going to kick all of them out. And that's the reality. That's the truth. That's the other side of the message, as Dave told us earlier. The gospel is great news for sinners, but those who don't accept it. The future is not a beautiful, it's not a festival, it's not a place where you're going to be with God. It's hell. It's a place separated from God for all eternity with all of those who did not bow and worship and become perfect through the blood of Jesus and put their faith in Jesus. There are two destinies, two destinations set before us, eternal destinations set before us. One, through the blood of Jesus, is a glorious gathering with God, with brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And a, and a resurrected life on a renewed earth or a new earth, whatever God wants to do, and life forever and ever with no more sin, no more Satan, no more suffering, no more sickness, all those started with S. That's appropriate for pastors to do, I think. Goodness. But there's another place for all those who turn away from Jesus or never accept him. And that's the reality. Let's live in light of the gratitude of a kind God saving sinners. And let's show love to our neighbors by letting them know this is, these are the two choices. We're all going one place or another. And though I know our culture likes to just kind of keep things like material, and, and if you have this, then you can be happy, and if you don't, then get it and you'll be happy. The decision is Jesus. What do you make of Jesus Christ? That determines our future. Thanks be to God for saving sinners. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. For you loved the world and you loved those you were calling into your family so much that you sent your son. that all of us who put our faith and trust in him will not perish, but have everlasting life in this glorious festival, which is happening now, in which we are on the invite list, 
and is ready and prepared for us. Let our eyes be fixed on Jesus so that we can run the race set before us with all endurance. And let us be thankful people, loving and kind and gentle because of your gentleness towards us. We love you and we praise you now in our song. In Jesus' name, amen.